to Women Making Moves, where we celebrate the moves that women are making. My name is Amy Pons, and I'm a Master Certified Life Coach and a Soul Healer. I'm joined today with Becky Mollenkamp. Becky is an accountability coach for smart, high-achieved business owners. She helps them go after their goals without burning out or losing sight of their values. Becky's also an intersectional feminist and conducts her coaching through that lens, such as acknowledging living experience and never using blame or shame as tools. Becky, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. We were just talking about, and we won't spend too much time on this, we were, we were talking about an idol that kind of fell from grace. And I love the way that you say, acknowledging lived experience, but never using blame or shame. That's kind of a, an ideal uh, way to think about the person we were just talking about. Exactly. Um, so with love and light, we hope they heal from things they don't realize might be coming up and we'll see where they go in the future. What are you excited about? What are the moves that you're excited to be making right now? Tell us a little bit more about your work. What's happening in Becky's world? Everything's moving around and changing for me. So it's perfect timing because I'm very much in the throes of thinking about making moves and and big changes with my business. And primary chief among those is for 2024, my word of the year is collaboration. And I'm really thinking about what are the ways that I can take the incredible relationships that I have cultivated this year through my word of the year of 2023 being intentional. I intentionally was all about like, how do I find a network of people that share values with me and that I feel really aligned with? And I've done like that has worked so amazingly well. I'm a big fan of words of the year. I always find they are, they really work out. And so that's gone great. But then it's like, now I'm in this place of, I don't want it to just be, I know you. I want it to be like, I know you, like I, I deeply know you. I care about you. I'm invested in you. You're invested in me. We want to help each other. So it's next year is really about how do I forge these relationships into something deeper? And how can it be about like lifting each other up and supporting each other in new ways? And so part of that is I'm shifting how I'm going to market my business because I'm really over opt-ins and all of the stuff, lead magnets and lead gen and, you know, sales funnels and blah, blah, blah. Like I just am done and I'm done with, I'm really getting done with social media, <laughs> at least as a driver of business. And so I'm going to be doing monthly panel discussions that I'll be hosting that are going to be just a place to hold space and talk about things that we care deeply about as business owners, but not just like, here's five tips for growing your business, but like, what does it mean to be a feminist? and married to a straight man? <laughs> what does it mean to be a feminist and have parenting responsibilities and running a business? And how do we re-examine that? You know, talking about how to be politically active as a business owner and what does that look like? So I'm going to have these monthly discussions every month, um, but I'm also looking for other ways to collaborate. So there's just a lot of change and I'm really excited about that. That's the beautiful part about having your own business. I'm almost a year in I will say that meeting you, I love the collective that we meet on a monthly basis. It's a space where women come together, feminist women, where we can share what's happening in our worlds. And the way that you articulate the fact that it's not just being connected, sharing things, like really knowing each other's heart, the best types of referrals in my business have been where people know me really personally and they're like, oh, you've got to talk to Amy. And I I wish I could do that more, have that more with the great women that I meet all the time. And we're still seemingly operating in this, got to meet as many people as we can. And I don't know, like, the, and again, the, I feel like the paradigm is shifting toward the divine feminine where we're bringing back in that nurturing, caring, and that we don't just need to pack our calendars with the quantity, but it's more of the quality as well. So amazing work. I'm glad you exist. I'm glad we're connected. <laughs> I'm glad you're doing all of the things. And I also love to hear that as a 
business owners, so many women that are starting their businesses for 24, they're thinking they've got to have everything figured out, at least in my experience. Women I talk to, they're like, I've got to have a business plan. It's like the classic MBA taught how to start a business plan. And I like to blow that up a little bit. (laughs) You don't have to have everything figured out. And it's always evolving as it it should. Yeah. Well, in that one right way is definitely rooted in white supremacy culture. And so let it go. Let that go. Right. There is no one right way of doing anything. I'm I'm just tired of even hearing about best practices or just any of it. The only best practice is the practice that works for you. Right. What feels good to you. And if it doesn't, then it isn't. Plain as that. I don't care if everyone says no Instagram reels are like the thing. You have to do them or your business will die. If it doesn't feel good to you, then it's not the right thing. It's not the one right thing and don't do it. So I'm I'm with you on that. You're absolutely right. And anyone that speaks in those extremes, I would give pause. You are the energy. You are the value, first of all, in your business. And second of all, you are the energy that you put into yourself that will come out into your business. Hey, have you seen uh, Lessons in Chemistry or read the book? No, but I have it in my queue to watch. So my husband and I just binged it and finished it last night, stayed up real late. And it's It's incredible. One thing I want to, I actually thought of you during many of the scenes, but do you find yourself ever, me as a feminist and especially spiritually enlightened, I really love to understand a person's why, especially understanding where we are in the world today. I still get really enraged sometimes about things I see or hear that are blatant you know, patriarchy or white supremacy or or what have you. How do you manage that? Because you seem so cool as a cucumber. I'm so envious. (laughs) I am certain my husband would laugh at that, that idea that I'm cool as a cucumber. Well, one, Lexapro. I've been on Lexapro now for like a couple of months and it's radically shifted how I show up. I've managed anxiety disorder my whole life. I've always self-managed. And this year I reached a place, a breaking point where I was like, it's clear I could not self-manage this right now. It may not be forever, but for right now, I cannot. And I think it is exactly because of what you're talking about, the rage, (laughs) the, you know, just the challenges of the world and the heaviness of all of that over years and also parenting and running a business, you know, all of it just became too much. So Lexapro is a big piece of that now, but it hasn't always been. Part of it is a lot of the things that we've all learned, right, around how to manage anxiety and stress through breathing and, you know, being present and all of that. But also... I don't always manage it. I don't, I think what I hear is how do you stay cool as a cucumber? Meaning how do you not have rage or how do you quiet the rage or, and I, I think rage is beautiful. I don't think that rage, right? Like rage isn't something we need to be afraid of or that we need to run from or hide or try to like stop. I think righteous rage is where change comes from. I mean, when we look at responses to things that have been really horrible. We look at the response to the oppression that still remains. The things that make the difference almost always start with righteous rage. It is That is the thing that creates change. And I think the reason that we, especially as women, anyone with a marginalized identity, I think we are very much conditioned into believing anger is bad, rage is bad, that we need to not show up that way at all. We should be afraid of our own anger. We need to quiet our own anger. It is because the systems, the power structure, that dynamic is fully aware 
that change comes from that rage. So if we don't, if we are afraid of our own rage and if we have learned to demonize our own rage and, and demonize, demonize ourselves for having it. And so we suppress it ourselves, then we don't get to that place of forcing change because we, we don't allow ourselves to feel the anger. We think that the anger is wrong. So what's happened is the system is wrong, but it's convinced us that our anger and our response to it is what's wrong. Which is wild because do you know, you know, what's interesting is in those moments, I really don't feel safe. And what's interesting about the rage that comes up, the people doing the oppressing, they don't feel safe when the rage comes up. It's like, we actually have common ground. I have a deep corporate wound of being there for almost 20 years, abuse, things like that. And I was angry. I was so mad. Now I still have that beautiful rage and lessons in chemistry helped remind me of that brought me to tears. I felt like a boiling sensation up through me. I like to think of myself as I'm a, I'm a rallier of women. And then we, we get real pissed and ragey. And then we go through to inspiration, passion to what we're going to do about it. I don't want to necessarily stay in the rage, but I do agree with you that it's really beautiful. It's fuel. It's fuel. And we've been We've been trained to be nice for so long and it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Like the whole, um, you get more flies, flies with honey. honey. Uh huh. That makes me, yeah, sure. <laughs> that I, I probably do. Maybe I get more flies, but those flies, like I also probably get a whole lot of bees that are stinging me. Right. Like, sure. Yeah, when I roll over and I am a doormat <laughs> and I am just like a people pleaser, which is what we're trained to do. I probably do please a lot of people, but I also in the, get stepped all over. Is it worth it? I don't know. Like to me, that's not worth it. It's not. I think rage is beautiful and it is fuel and it needs to be channeled in a way that is useful. Right. So sure. Just sitting around in blind rage and then taking it out on your child or the stranger in the, you know, when you're driving, like, don't get me wrong. I have road rage sometimes and I'm trying to channel that and work on that, manage that better. But that's not the, that's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about this anger that we feel about injustice and allowing that to be the fuel to say, what is the vision for what I want? And how do I let this fuel, this anger service fuel to make that happen? Because it's one thing to just say, I'm just going to be angry and lash out. That doesn't create any change. But when you say I am angry because I am righteously so, right? There's a difference between just feeling pissed off and be having righteous anger. To me, righteous anger is when you have a visceral response to something that is wrong, it is wrong, right? Racism is wrong, yes. period, point blank, right? Sexism is wrong, period, point blank. And so when we have a response to that, that can be fuel to say this thing is not okay. It is harming me. And when I start to feel unsafe because of the rage, I think what I'm really feeling unsafe about is the thing that's causing the rage. I feel unsafe because of sexism. Right. My rage to it feels uncomfortable because I'm not, I have never learned how to be comfortable with rage. Because I wasn't taught that, but I can be, I can learn how to be safe and angry. I can learn that. Like that is something we can all learn to do. I can learn how to have anger and use that to be by power, but I can't be safe in sexism. I can't like that creates the unsafety and the rage can be the thing that helps me dismantle the thing that isn't keeping me safe. But I do think it's about what you said earlier, your why. It's about holding a vision. And this is something that's been wonderful. I've had younger feminists challenge me on this and it's been so powerful and helpful because it's one thing to just be mad about and know what you don't want. But where that rage becomes useful is when you know what you do want and you can put the rage toward creating that, right? So if I'm just mad because I don't like sexism, (laughs) 
I can be mad about that. I can have that rage, but then what, what do I do with it? I just fight against mean jerky men. That doesn't really get me anywhere. I need to know what I want to create. What is the world I actually want? And then I put that rage toward making that happen. Right. That's what I think is the difference. And that's so powerful. And so like, I get mad. I get real freaking mad. And sometimes I'm just in that blind rage space. And I think it's okay to have space for that too. Sometimes you just have to feel it. You got to feel the anger just to say like, this sucks. This isn't right. But then at some point, once you allow those feelings to kind of exist and to honor them, then moving into, okay, so what do I want? Yeah, that sucks. That's not right. But what is the world I want to create? How do I want to channel this into something that makes something better? And that's been something that has really what's shifted for me lately (laughs) is being able to say, I can now hold that vision and I can use this anger as fuel to say, I'm going to create it. And so that's what's made it really powerful and beautiful for me. We're the change. We are the power. It's happening. When I feel, I love that you called it righteous anger. I call it sacred rage. It's from a place where thousands of women before me, that energy is in me. And I had a moment in lessons in chemistry where like I was completely unregulated. My nervous system was not okay. We had to pause the show. I flipped the fuck out. You'll see it. You'll know what I'm talking about. But I love that you're talking to younger feminists as well, because I'm an older millennial. I'm 41. Have you run across anger toward older feminists? I view myself, especially when I was in the corporate world as part of the problem still. What does that space look like in terms of teaching maybe one another about things we might not understand or know about our specific lived experiences, but also I don't know if it's generational or the things that we were brought up with. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer so I'm, and I'm older than you. I'm nearly 50 now. I know that journey of what my feminism looked like versus what it is now being, you know, somebody who was a feminist in the 90s <laughs> versus a feminist now. And in the 90s, I would have told you I was a great feminist. Hell yeah, I'm a feminist. I hadn't read Angela Davis or Audre Lorde or Bell Hooks or like, you know, my feminism was Gloria Steinem feminism, which is excellent. And I love Gloria Steinem. I actually had the distinct honor of getting to interview her in college and sit with her for an hour and drink tea with her. And it was amazing. And I was a good white feminist for a really long time. And good white feminism is bad feminism. And I do think that that is a generational issue. I don't think it's exclusively a generational issue. To be clear, there are many white feminists who remain who are 20-something feminists. That's what we see in that girl bossy space, right? But also many older feminists. Yes. Because we grew up in a time where we had not had that same racial awakening and reckoning that has happened in 2020. But prior to 2020, for many people, you know, for me, it started in 2014 with the murder of Michael Brown, a half a mile from where I lived and being very much in that moment. And it being the thing that prompted my own awakening to recognize that my feminism was white feminism and learning about intersectional feminism and understanding that if your feminism isn't intersectional, then I don't believe it's feminism. I believe it is about women's empowerment, which is very different than what I think feminism needs to be, which is about empowering women, but it's empowering all women. And it's about, to me, ultimately it's about equity, which means when we, when we expand it beyond women and start talking about equity, that's where, that's what gets me excited. And that I think is what intersectional feminism is because it's about equity for everyone. Right. And that means no matter what identities you hold, it's about finding equity. But my feminism wasn't that for a long time because I hadn't been forced into that. And I think there's a strong difference between 
women of color who are would identify as feminists or who don't like the word and then white feminists especially white feminists over a certain age but i think it may be less about age although that is a factor inside of it than it is about the identities that you hold people who hold more marginalized identities so like someone who has disability would probably be more likely to find their way to intersectional feminism first than just someone who's a cis white hetero able-bodied you know healthy woman right like those are going to be the women who probably are most likely to be white feminists. And I highly recommend White Feminism by Koa Beck. If you haven't read it and you are a white woman who thinks of herself as a good feminist, read it. Challenge yourself. To be clear, because my podcast is called Feminist Founders, the first question I always ask is tell me about your relationship with feminism. And I will tell you, the white women who come on generally have a great relationship with that word, a historic relationship with that word, one that's evolved over time, but they feel very positively about feminism and tend to center women in that experience, right? So that's about women versus the people of color who come on my podcast, who very often, far more often say that word doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't feel like a part of my life. I would have never thought of myself as a feminist. Some might use womanist. Some might say black feminist. Most though just say that's not me, but I care deeply about equity, right? I care deeply about social justice. Our beliefs end up being aligned, but feminism has a history of exclusion versus inclusion, has a very strong history of being white feminism, of that being what feminism was about. I am trying to, by using that name for my podcast, I'm trying to reclaim it. What it is, what it actually is, is beautiful and is about equity and is about all of us. It is about saying her suffering means I am suffering. Like I'm not free until she's free, right? Like until all of us are free. I want that version of feminism and I want us to start to bring that back instead of the pussy hat version of feminism. So I do use it, but I also honor the fact that I know it has a very challenging history of exclusion. As you were talking in real time, you helped me heal a few degrees in my corporate wound because I was a really great white feminist in my 30s and I was the head of the women's employee resource group at my corporate spot. And I was like, I'm a feminist. And then by the end of that time, when I had met so many women of all walks, and I know exactly what you're talking about, because I was, I didn't know that much yet. I still don't know that much yet, but it's, it's building and I'm knowing where I want to be, which is the equity of all women, but also all humans that we're all souls here. We have a place Can I just quickly offer a little something to you too? Because I know when we go down this journey, what can happen is we can start to feel a lot of like guilt and shame about how we got to this late, the mistakes that we've made, the harm that we have caused as white women, especially before doing some deep learning around white supremacy and your role inside of that, we cause harm. And even after that learning, we will continue to cause harm. We will have to again and again own mistakes, apologize for mistakes and learn and grow. This will be a lifelong journey because guess what? The system isn't changing. Not today. I won't be a part of it, but I know that I will work my entire life to change the system and it won't change in my lifetime. And I have to just continue to do it anyway, knowing that eventually it will. And I'm doing this for my son and for his friends and 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 hopefully, hopefully them, maybe the next generation, but at some point it's going to change. But the reason I share that is we are all harmed by and perpetuate these systems. No matter who you are, everyone has some degree of privilege, almost everyone, right? There's some degree, even if you are a person of color, maybe you had more wealth, or maybe you were a person of color who is Christian. At least you have the dominant religion as part of your, so like we all have varying identities and some of them have different amount of privileges, but those of us with the most amount of privilege, which is a white woman is about as much as you can get beyond being a white man, right? 
there can be a lot of guilt and shame that comes up as you start to do this work. And that can be enough to turn some people off from the work. And that is where I want to be careful. Because when we let that guilt and shame consume us, make no mistake about it. That's why I say part of my work as an intersectional feminist is saying no shame and blame. Because the blame and shame are the sharpest tools of patriarchy. It is by design that we learn these things because it stops us. As soon as you start to feel shameful, shame is such an ugly uncomfortable. Like I think all emotions are valid. And I will say shame is one of the ones that has almost no validity, like no usefulness. There is some argument to be made that it can help create change, but only when it's actually powerful in that way. Most often shame shuts us down. It shuts us down because we can't handle those feelings of I am bad. And so instead of having that, what we will do is distort the reality to bring us back to saying, I am good. What will happen is people will start down this journey and they start to feel bad. So then they say, I can't handle that. So I'll have to change my belief system to make myself good again. We have to allow ourselves to go through that discomfort and say, the system harmed me too. It harms every white, able-bodied, cis, wealthy. It harms man, everyone. All of us are harmed by this system. All of us internalize it, not because we thought it was great to internalize it, but because we are breathing the water from the moment we come out of the womb. And all of us perpetuate it until we know better and can do better. But if we let the shame shut us down, then we nothing will change. There's not a person of color who's like, oh, thank you for your white guilt. Whenever you start from that moment forward, you are saying, I am rejecting these systems. I am acknowledging I've also been harmed by them. I'm acknowledging I've perpetuated harms also, but now I know and I will do better. I'm going to learn and do better and I'll still make mistakes and I'll do better. And you touched on this even before we take our first breaths out of the womb, already in our DNA. We have our mom, our grandma, our great-grandma, our great-great-grandma. We have all of that in us. It's so much energy that it's already ingrained in you. And again, it's not an excuse. It's just more about giving the grace to yourself to say, again, once you know better, do better, Maya Angelou. You know, just, just make sure to start somewhere, sometime. And when you have those moments of guilt or shame, lean in and own it. That's the best way that you can move forward. And I love also what you said about where you channel the energy. Those people that are the most dangerous right now, men or women, men and women, humans are actually propelled to be able to awaken more humans to want to figure out what they do want in this life or the next lifetime or for their kids or whomever. But their role here is to ruffle feathers and wake people up. There's space for that, at least in my mind and heart. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And just on that generational thing, I think often another thing that can happen sometimes with white women is we can hold very strongly onto our feminine identity. And so we will try to find commonality based on our marginalization without owning our oppressor identity as well. And I think it's really important that we also acknowledge that that lineage includes lots of oppression and marginalization, but also includes lots of oppressor identity. And we have a lineage of both as women having ancestors and that ancestry of like being burned at the stake and all of these things, right? But then we also have plenty of that lineage of causing harm. We have to reckon with both of those. To me, being able to sit with that and own it, it's actually, there's compassion in it. To say to yourself, why wouldn't I have shown up this way? And they're like, to me, there's compassion in that. I've been a part of the problem, but why wouldn't I have been? Of course I was. This is generations and generations of this. That is, it's like you said, it is in my DNA. It is everything I have known. More change comes from compassion than from shame. I'm always putting my hands on my heart to be like, of course, of course, of course, that's how I showed up. All of those women before you, all of those oppressor and oppressed feelings, 
all of them want to be seen and heard as well. So honoring that they are part of you and then saying, okay, and who do I want to be in this space and time? Then you move forward. Next, I want to talk about a post that you recently made that I really resonated with. And it's actually from your podcast with Alyssa Hall. The quote is, if the only people who can receive the magic that you bring are people that look like you, then you're continuing to create inequity. What you shared back is like me, I'm certain you want to create a more inclusive workplace and community around you. Challenge your assumptions about how to do that by listening to this incredible interview with Alyssa Hall on Feminist Founders Podcast. It's so good. And I bet you'll walk away with at least a few light bulb moments. So with this post, I know you chose the quote you did, and I think that's gorgeous. And it's a lot about what, we, what we've been talking about. What was a light bulb moment for you from this episode? Was there something new that popped up for you? That's a great question. I'm trying to decide if there was anything new. I mean, I feel like with a lot of these, it's more confirmation because I have been on this journey of learning and unlearning for so long that I do feel like a lot of times it's more of like a reawakening of things that I know of like, oh, that's right. That really feels good. But I would, I mean, that quote, the reason I picked it, I mean, it was beautiful. And it did challenge me to continue to explore. And I think it's so important for us as like, especially again, I'm speaking to the white women just because that's my experience and that's, you know, my lens on the world. And also where I think we need to make the most change. I think white women are, are the people we can't expect white men are going to change at the pace that we want them to. I expect them to change, but it's not going to happen as quickly. But white women, you know, we are the group that really needs to do the most change because we actually do have marginalized identities and oppressor identities. And there's a good 50% of white women who are leaning very heavily into the oppressor identity. And I, but I feel like if we can reach them, we can pull them along. And so one of the things I think so many white women in business need to reckon with is to look at what does my community look like? And I'm talking about the clients I serve, but also the rooms that I'm in, the people I'm learning from, because if all of it looks like me, if it's primarily white women or white people, even if it's primarily, you know, women, (laughs) but they're white. Also, if I'm straight, are they all straight? (laughs) If I'm able-bodied, are they all able-bodied? If I have thin privilege, do they all have thin privilege? But like really examining what are the identities of the people from whom I'm learning? And if, if everyone you're learning from is white, if everyone you're serving is white, if everyone you're in community with looks like you, that's a problem. And yet that is the truth for a lot of white women in business. When we start to really look at our network, it's like, does look a lot like me. And it's easy to excuse it. I hear it all the time. I hear from white women. Well, I I say my stuff's inclusive. You know, I'm doing my, I'm trying. I'm like, you know, I'm doing these things. I'm using this language or I'm showing up this way and they're just not buying from me. There's a reason, right? And that's a hard thing to sit with. It goes back to all we just talked about. It's really challenging to sit with that and to acknowledge that there's, there's a reason for that. You aren't safe. Why? Why aren't you safe yet? What needs to happen for you to be a safer space for people to feel like they can be safe with you? Because if if people who aren't like you aren't buying from you or aren't in community with you, I can tell you it's because they don't feel safe to do that. It's not just about build it and they will come. That's very often what I see. Well, they just don't buy from me. Okay, what efforting are you putting in to make that happen? But it's also about intentionality. That was my word of the year, intentional. I intentionally went about building a network because I'm not speaking on high here. I am speaking as somebody who's very much in the trenches of this too. And it wasn't that long ago that I looked at my network and said, looks a lot like me. My client base all looks a lot like me. This is a problem, right? And I've done a lot of the work and I'm, you know, all the same things, but I wasn't intentional about efforting to make it happen to go out and actually put myself into spaces, to be in community, to 
to be uncomfortable at being the minority in the room. Like we have to learn how to do that as white women, but also how to say like, I'm going to intentionally go about not tokenizing people, but saying, I want who I learn from to be more diverse starting there. Because if you haven't done the work of learning and unlearning and learning from people who don't look like you, then you aren't safe to go and start being in spaces with people who don't look like you. So you've got to start with the learning piece. And I did. So once you've done that sort of work and have some more of those foundational elements, the the language with which to speak about these things, the understanding, at least the, the beginnings of understanding of differences and all of that, then you can begin to go and say, now I want to be in community with people that aren't like me. And I think hearing Alyssa talk about that, I had been on that path, but it was this really stark reminder of, yeah, I know there's still more I can do because still my client, while my client base is becoming, is becoming more diverse, there's definitely more there. And that does tell me that if it's not showing up in my end results, it means my efforting isn't enough yet. And that, again, I could feel shame about that, or I can say, what a wonderful opportunity for growth. Around the work that you're doing, feminist founders, collaborating with women intersectionally, very intentionally, what would you say to folks who both support the work that you're doing, but also may not understand it or agree? Is there a difference? And what do those conversations look like? Mm, Well, you're going to challenge me here, Amy, because (laughs) those conversations don't look like much to me anymore because I don't have many of them. I honor and appreciate Love on the people who are making space in their life to try to educate and bring along people into caring about equity and social justice. That's not me. That's not my role. And I'm okay with that. I get challenged on this a lot, especially on social media by strangers who feel really strong and comfortable with anonymity to tell me what they think, including call me the C word recently which is fine. These things happen. When you put yourself out there as a feminist, you're going to get responses from men who get real threatened. So, but I have often people saying, Hey, you, you only want to live in a vacuum and talk to people who believe what you believe. And if you really care about these things and you need to be like teaching people about why and blah, 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 all the stuff I hear and receive that. And I also reject it for myself. I think it is beautiful. There are people who are willing to do that. That is not something in which I feel safe. And I get to have boundaries too. I get to decide who I'm going to have in my life and who I'm not. And I, at this moment anyway, my nervous system can't manage that. I also have been harmed by patriarchy. (laughs) Again, I was recently called the C word on social media, and that is not the first, nor will it be the last time that some man feels like he can do that. I am constantly still harmed by these things. And I do not have to subject myself to harm just because I believe in this and want to see other people come along. Those who are willing to do it, beautiful. I'm so thrilled. So what it looks like for me is I just don't have conversations with those people. That goes back to my intentionality. I am building community and space with people that we have a shared understanding of humanity. I will argue, I will have a debate with you about what is the best condiment for a sandwich. I will gladly debate you about which TV shows deserve to win Emmys. I will debate you about a lot of things. What I will not debate about, nor am I even really interested in educating you on, is about basic humanity. In the cases where somebody that I know on a personal level, not in a social media post of, you know, a hundred characters or whatever, actually genuinely wants to learn about things. I love to have those conversations in a civil way. The energy that that man put out by calling you the C word, that's his to reckon. I would have simply responded, may you heal. Well, you're nicer than me because I I just reposted it and let everyone else attack him. I didn't even feel bad about it. 
listen, there's no wrong way. And depending on where I was that day, I may have done the exact same thing. Becky, where do we find you? BeckyMollenCamp.com or Feminist Founders. You can find at feministfounders.substack.com. And then there's also anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can listen to Feminist Founders. It's interviews with business owners who are trying to break these norms and challenge them in the ways that they're running their business or teaching about business. And they're really powerful conversations. And I'm all social media is Becky Mollenkamp too. Although, like I said, I'm growing more and more tired of social media. So the countdown is on on how much longer I will even bother. But for now, I'm still there. (laughs) Closing remarks as we wind down. I just want people to feel excited about growth, (laughs) learning and growing, especially for the white women listening, because that is, again, my lens on the world. And I do not feel it is my place to try to talk to other folks about their journey on equity before white women, especially. I just want to invite you into the idea that change is beautiful, that learning is beautiful, and that you will make mistakes and that you will feel defensive. You will want to cry. All of the things that we white women do (laughs) and it's all okay. And don't quit when it gets uncomfortable, when it feels hard, when it feels like, is this even worth it? Like I can't ever get this right. Why bother? It's a beautiful opportunity for growth. But when I finally set down my defenses, I allowed people to call me in when I started to own up to my mistakes, when I started to see those things as learning opportunities and growth, man, everything changed. It felt so expansive and beautiful. And by the way, that is also when more folks with more marginalized identities began to feel safer with me. Thank you, Becky. Thank you. 